Good morning, friends. Blessed Epiphany, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Today is Friday, January 12th, and you're listening to the program where each weekday morning we explore the Holy Scriptures to which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. In our text for today, Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul urges Christians to imitate God by living as children of the light, taking no part in sexual immorality or impurity, greed or obscenities. He instructs wives to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ, and husbands to love their wives as Christ loved the church. Paul tells them to be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, giving thanks to God in the name of Jesus. And he concludes by urging them to all submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Dear friends, thanks for tuning in and being with us today. Whether you're coming in over the air or online at KFUO.org or through the KFUO app, maybe through your favorite podcasting app or smart speaker, i just so glad that you're here. So settle in, open your hearts and your minds. We are about to begin. Thy Strong Word is graciously supported by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. They translate, publish, and distribute books that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. When you get a moment, go visit them online, lhfmissions.org. Now, if you have any comments or questions about today's show, you know there are three ways to reach out. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can find me on Facebook, send me a text message there, or you can call in 1-800-730-2727. And if you do call in, you'll be speaking to me and my guest, who this morning is the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming. Good morning, Pastor Mullet. Welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me again. Good. I'm excellent. To, so happy to have you. Now, how is, you know, weather is the topic of the day here in Southwest Minnesota. We are on our third uh, school closure day of this week. We have a bunch of inches of snow, blizzard warnings today, wind chills of a negative 45 How's the weather up there in Buffalo, Wyoming? Quite a bit drier. Uh, My brother lives in in the Chicago area, so they're getting a lot of that wet, heavy stuff that I'd imagine you guys are getting. Um, Mm -hmm. But it's very dry up here. We've only got about two inches of snow, and we're not expecting a whole lot more. Uh, But right now, the air temperature is about 15 below, and our wind chills are going down to 25, 30 below. Wow. Wow. It's actually warmer in Buffalo, New York than where it is where you are. So I can't imagine I, that happens very often. I know. I, <laughs> I, yeah, I'm with you there. Well, I'll tell you what, we have a lot to get through today. Some pretty uh, tingly conversation coming because, you know, we're going to talk about this idea of husbands and wives submitting and loving one another. And that's that's such a touchy subject in today's world where people want to reject God's plan for things like family and marriage. But there's a lot more to our discussion than just that. But before we get into it, as always, would you start us off with prayer? Let us pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, you have created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them and set them in a marvelous order according to your wisdom. Open our hearts and minds by your word and spirit that we might see the beauty and the wisdom in your created order and gladly follow you as your dear children, walking in love as Christ has loved us. All this we ask in his name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, we are starting off, of course, today. That text is going to be chapter 5, but let's look at chapter 4 just a little bit because when we pick up in chapter 5, it begins, 
therefore. So he's continuing a conversation or an argument that he's been making, and that is of the new life that Christians live in, particularly Gentiles. You know, Gentiles are being called, Paul is revealing that they are being called into the faith to be a part of the one body with the chosen. The chosen kind of grew up with this idea and expectations of how they're supposed to live through the law. The Gentiles don't. So he's laying out what this new life looks like. What else should we be aware of as we get into our text for today? Yeah, I think that's a good place to start. Uh, It's really beginning back in chapter four, really at verse 17, uh, when Paul uses that word walk, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. And that's going to actually carry us through most of the first bit of chapter five as well. Uh, One of those places where you kind of have to be willing to ignore the chapter numbers for a moment to get the full picture of what Paul's trying to say here. Uh, And that he begins and ends with this idea of walking, um, that we always have a direction that we're going, that we always have a destination in mind. Um, This idea about life being a journey and so on, we, we scoff at it sometimes because of the ideas that go with it. But there is some truth in it as well that we as Christians always have a direction that we're going and we always have a way that we're walking. Uh, and you see this idea, of course, throughout the scriptures. Uh, and and really, in the latter half of four and into this first portion of chapter five, one of the things that I think um, is is most to be emphasized is that, that we do have spelled out for us very carefully, even in these opening verses of chapter five, the proper direction of our good works. And it is, it is not that we are motivated by God's love to do good works or not just that we're motivated as if we are moving ourselves to love one another on the basis of gratitude for God, but rather that God is moving us, that we are actually enabled by God's love and Holy Spirit to love one another as Christ has loved us. And that's where chapter five kind of picks up. Yeah, and that is really important because when we talk about different roles here, you know, people have this expectation that some are somehow the role is loftier than the other. But the overarching the overarching message of this whole book, really, but especially this section is that, yeah, we need to conform our lives to Christ for each other. And so even in this first two verses, yeah, the first two verses, which I'm going to read, uh, he, he sets that up. He says, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk. There's that word again, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So in a minute, we're going to hear about, you know, husbands loving their wives, but here we have Christ loving us and he does it in a way that is self abnegating and self sacrificing. And he's connecting even Christ's sacrifice here to well, what it should be connected to, the, the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. That's what was leading up to. So, uh, yeah, just right here we even see we imitate God as, you know, beloved children might imitate their parents. Yeah, and that's the relationship that is going to continue to uh, be brought up by Paul here. He's going he's gonna to play a lot of times this uh, child and parent relationship because at, in in Christ, right? By faith in Christ, Jew and Gentile alike are all sons and daughters of God. And so we imitate him again, not out of fear or not simply that we have to motivate ourselves out of our gratitude for the sacrifice of Jesus, but rather we have actually been brought into his family by the sacrifice of Jesus. And so as members of that family, now we are actually able 
to act like members of that family. And that's going to become, of course, even more um, even more important and even more, I think, real for us as human beings on this side of glory as he's going to move into in the latter half of five talking about wives and husbands. And then, of course, into chapter six, he begins talking about parents and children and so on as well. And all those kind of family images that he's using to tell us about our relationship with God, we get to see play out in in a slightly less perfect way, shall we say, in our human relationships between husbands and wives, between parents and children and so on. Yeah, and and also I think it's worth pointing out that Paul here is giving a command, right? He's, he's saying – do this, be this. Now, we know our ability to keep the law is completely dependent upon the Holy Spirit's working in us, but we shouldn't have this understanding or this idea that because we're forgiven, then it really doesn't matter how we behave because Christ will just keep forgiving us. But no, now that you have this new life, you are to be imitators of God, right? Live as Christ wants you to live. And in these next verses, he's going to lay out some pretty explicit things that are uh, against the way that God wants you to live. And unfortunately, a lot of these things are now celebrated in our culture today. But also make no mistake, they really have been throughout history. So let's look into verse 3 and, oh, I'll stop when it makes sense. Here we go. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the Son's of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Now, that's the end of verse 7. That thought continues. In fact, I'm right in the middle of a sentence here, but I just want to take this on its own to begin. So he begins with porneia. Take us through that. Yeah, this is the only instance of this word in Ephesians, actually, um, which is kind of unusual because we can see, of course, that it's talked about in a few different ways. Um, but I think uh, this does speak a little bit to cultural context that a lot of um, pagan religions that these Gentiles would have at least been aware of, if not full on participants in, really did revolve around sexual sins, what we as Christians would see as sexual sins. Uh, that was a very important part in a lot of different uh, cultures, worship life. Um, and so we can hear, I think, uh, the Greek word, as Pastor Boo said, is porneia. You can kind of hear what other English words we might get from that word. Um, and, and that really is what we're talking about. And he says, not even named. Don't even talk about it. Uh, and I think that's less about that it's necessarily, right, because you could take that idea too far and say, well, it's a sin to even name sins, right? And that's not quite what we mean. I think what Paul's getting after here is simply... You know, especially with the following verse as well, no foolish talk, crude joking, etc. Um, that that talking about things can lead to doing things. And if we think it's okay to talk about and to joke about, it's not that far of a stretch anymore for us to think, well, maybe just once, or maybe just twice, or may, and, and it very quickly becomes a dangerous cycle to fall into. 
And he talks here then, but instead, right? In much the same way, uh, Luther kind of picks up this pattern in the small catechism with the Ten Commandments, where it's not simply don't do these things, but he also gives you then, Luther does in the catechism and Paul does here, gives you a positive replacement for it. Which is so important when we're when we're mm-hmm. talking to folks who struggle with some of these sins, that it's not really just about not doing that thing. It's also much more about what is something good that we can replace that with in your life to fill that time, because we are creatures of habit. If we don't have something to fill that little gap of time, well, guess where we're going to go again and again and again. Um, so it is. It is. It's both and uh, for Paul and those exhortations all the way through the book of Ephesians are like this, that that it's not only don't do this, but also here's a positive godly thing that in Christ you can now do as a child of God. I mean, it's like writing a sermon, right? When we when we put pen to paper, we're trying to get across some points. We're trying to elucidate, elucidate God's word for the people. But it often is a temptation just to sort of leave it at, okay, well, now you know what you've been doing wrong or what we've been doing wrong. You know you have forgiveness and you know you need to quit doing it, and then it's just sort of silence. So that's why I think it's important that both in sermons but also, of course, in relationships and and Bible studies and stuff that, yeah, the church needs to be there for people to give them uh, uh, alternatives as Paul does here. Yeah, I think that's – frankly, is is kind of a, a frightening thing. And I think as pastors, especially, we have a temptation to shy away from what you might call preaching the third use of the law, if you will, right. uh, those exhortations to good works that are all over the place in Paul's letters, um, because we don't want it to sound like we're trying to be works righteous about things. Like we're not trying to tell people, well, you have to do these things or else. Um, no, we as long as we rightly understand them, it is important for us to do this, not only pastors to their people, but also Christians one to another to encourage one another in good works, to encourage one and build one another up, right? Right, and we talked about that back in Ephesians too, right? We're created in Christ Jesus for good works, and yeah, Paul doesn't shy away from it. And I don't know this for certain, but I also kind of think that's a little bit of a Lutheran hang-up too. Not that other people's people or other traditions don't also struggle with that, but I think us especially, we— you know, we don't want people to think we're trying to work our way into heaven. But, you know, I think pastors have kind of failed to notice that unlike in Luther's day, we don't have congregations full of people trying to work their way into heaven. So I don't I don't know that that temptation is there as much as it used to be, perhaps in other ways. But I, I do want to take a step back, though, back to three. So he gives these two overarching, you know, uh, sinful behaviors, sexual immorality, porneia, and covetousness. Right. Which is interesting because when he we, we think about the sexual immorality related to the pagan religions, it might be easy for us to think, well, that doesn't apply anymore because, well, we don't have a lot of pagan temples whereby there's temple prostitution and other things going on. But the idea of, of sexual immorality and, and, and sensuality and these things are basically marketed in our culture in such a way that you are exposed to it all the time. And then when you get to this idea of covetousness, you know, that is, he calls those who are covetous idolaters. Um, the word here is uh, pleonexia. It refers to the idea of to possess more and more and more than other people, regardless of whether or not you need it. So it's greedy. So 
if nothing else, it's a lot of our culture and our and the worldwide economy is based on being covetous, right? Wanting more and more and more, even if it's more than what you need. So two of the big issues that we face in our culture today, improper sexuality and covetousness, Paul is addressing as current problems way back when he writes Ephesians. I think that's important to note. Absolutely. There's nothing new under the sun, right? And, um, you know, I I think that that covetousness idea that you grabbed onto is also kind of the clincher, for better or for worse, when it comes to talking about the the sexual sins uh, that we see our culture committing and that we ourselves are tempted to join in with, right? It's so easy to look at those ancient pagan rituals and so on and say, well, we clearly don't do that anymore. That covetousness is included here reminds us that not all sins are committed outwardly with our hands and with our bodies, um, that there are sins that are committed only with our eyes or only in our minds or only in our hearts. Um, and, and, you know, we, we do rightly confess that we have sinned against God in thought and word and deed. Um, and I think that speaks not only to the continuity of, you know, we live in a fallen world and we are always going to be surrounded by these things, but so also does it speak to, I think, the comprehensiveness of our sins. Um, simply to say that, that it across the board, we all fall short, um, which is Romans 6, but I find actually quite a few parallels between this chapter and Romans chapter 6. So I think we'll find more of those as we keep going. Absolutely. And, and Paul doesn't establish all of this as some way in which to please God for salvation. He's, he's couching all of this teaching in the idea that you are a new person. He picks up on that as we continue with verse 8 and following. Paul continues, For at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Okay, so that's all the way up pretty much until he shifts gears. So back to eight. So one time you were darkness, but now you are light. I've always found it interesting that he doesn't say you were in the darkness, but now that you are in the light, um, he says you were darkness and now you are light. Is that significant? I think it's just powerful. Um, <clears throat> uh, you get a similar idea, of course, in in Colossians chapter one, where he talks about in baptism being transferred out of the kingdom of darkness, um, that not only you were in it or that you were of it, but in fact, under its domain in the kingdom of darkness and transferred out of that into the kingdom of the beloved son. And I think here, uh, because we have such a strong warning against returning to the previous way of walking, Right, which is what what he's doing in verse eight. That used to be you, 
all those things I just told you not to do. I understand you used to be that way before you were saved by Jesus, right? Before you came to faith, so to speak. Um, but now, now you are light, right? And and I think establishing the just that that distinction between darkness and light, which is all the way through the scriptures. In fact, it's the very first distinction God ever makes in the course of recorded history, right? Um, that's the very first thing he separates, the light from the darkness. And to make that distinction so much a part of who we are, I think then speaks likewise to when we are apart from Christ, our identity is apart from Christ. And when we are in Christ, our entire identity, our entire person, who are you? I am a child of God, right? That's who I am. That's who I belong to. Um, so to make it, you were darkness and now you are light, I think just really drives home that idea of the identity and who you belong to and which family you're part of. So now you are light. And so what should you do? Well, try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Now, in my preface before reading this, I mentioned that, you know, this isn't for us to try to discern ways in order to please God for our salvation. But as is a famous trick question from pastors, you know, are good works required of the Christian? And the answer, of course, is yes, good works are required for the Christian, uh, not for salvation, but in response to faith. And so he says here, you know, discern what is pleasing to the Lord. It, again, not trying to work our way into heaven, but now that we have been saved, we live in that family that we're in, as you were talking about. We live in the light. So he continues, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Now, most of that seems pretty straightforward. But I wonder, tell us what he, you think he means when he says, instead, expose them, bring them to light. Uh, is this in ourselves, in others, in the world, all of the above? What do you think? Uh, I, would, I would tend toward all of the above. Um, precisely because, right, getting back to walk as children of the light. And, and I think this instead expose them is... I mean, in, in time and space, what's the most immediate way to do that? The easiest way to do it is for yourself. And the easiest way to do that is to confess your sins, right? To simply look into yourself and recognize the things that you have done that are contrary to that walk as a child of the light and confess those sins, whether it is private confession with your pastor or if you've sinned against another person and confess to them, apologize, receive forgiveness. Um, and, you know, and perhaps... Um, your your conscience is is put at peace simply by finding yourself again in the divine service and receiving confession and absolution, receiving the Lord's Supper and so on. Um, but what a great gift that we can we can go further than that with private confession, with personal confession to one another for certain sins um, when our consciences are particularly burdened. Likewise, exposing the sins of others, and that 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 is also kind of a touchy subject. Um, we've been with our boys in, uh, in family devotions, we're reading through Ezekiel right now. And, um, just over and over that refrain in Ezekiel is warn them if they're committing sins, warn them, warn them, warn them. And if you do warn them, then it's kind of up to them whether they heed the warning or not. But I, I think that applies. It of course is aimed kind of directly at pastors in certain portions of Ezekiel, but it's, that's for all Christians expose, right? Call a sin a sin, Jesus says so. Um, and to recognize, right, we're not doing that because we want to hurt somebody's feelings. And we're not doing that because we're looking to condemn them from the word go. We're doing that because we recognize that sinful thing that they are doing 
is harmful to them and if left unchecked could be eternally harmful to them um which is which is what paul calls us to do for us as well when we're careful about how we walk in all of this he's not saying that a single sin under one of these categories means that we have no inheritance he means if you persist in these things if you continue to get tangled up in them they can lead you astray they can lead you away from jesus and that's what we're called to do here as well the word here that's translated expose is used for expose in many many places to lay bare you know uh, you know to uh, make a spectacle of to find to show but it's most often at least the root is used to talk about rebuking and reproving and convicting so so i think expose is chose very well because the whole context is being light and light exposing darkness but at the same time yeah, just as you're saying, built into this phrase is a duty of Christians, obviously with gentleness and love and the desire to see people saved, to call out sins in yourself and in the world, and sometimes even in others, but obviously in a Christian way. Yeah, and that's you know for for us and for them, and that really goes back to once again. Um, that we we once walked that way. This is, I think, this is something that's so difficult. I mean, it's for me and for so many folks that I know as lifelong Christians, right? I mean, I was baptized at three weeks old. I I don't have any memories of not being a Christian, but I think that is why sometimes we see much greater zeal for evangelism, for mission work, and so on among more recent converts because they have more vivid memories of what it was like before Jesus. They have. Yeah, I, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to completely agree with you and piggyback on it to say that in the context of Ephesians, you have a lot of people, most of which at this point, who have come. They do remember, as you're saying. And so this command to expose them, I don't think is heard in the most uncharitable way. I think it's heard in just what you're saying. You know, hey, now that you're light, go shine your light on others. And in fact, he even says that. He says, it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret, which I think carries with it the idea of, but you know what they do in secret because you used to do it. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. Therefore, so look carefully how you walk, etc. So, yeah, I mean, I think they're hearing this as a, as, as you were saying, a zealous charge to go and, and share the light more, get more light in this world. And that's how we should see it. But the people on the other end of the equation, I just want to add real quick, they, of course, don't want to be exposed. So it is always perceived as negative, no matter how nicely you do it. All right, go ahead, brother. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, that's fine. That, you know, and that that light shining in the darkness, which, of course, is a great um, Christmas and Epiphany theme as it is already. Um, But this this whole thing, you're absolutely right, is, you know, for the Ephesians in their time and place, this is only received with joy, I think, for those converted Gentiles to say, you know what, I do remember what that was like. And I don't want that for me anymore. And I don't want that for any of the people that I know either. Um, and I think even even we who have been Christians our whole lives, by God's grace, um, even though we've, we, we don't hear that in quite the same way, um, I think we can we can kind of imagine what it would be like. And we can kind of look around and see that our world continues to do all the same things that it did in Paul's day and say, I have something better. My life has borne out those blessings of God and demonstrate, at least to me, 
that I have something better than that. Um, and, and I want that for everybody else that I meet also. Why would you not want that for everybody? God wants that for everybody. There is room for everybody, right? Um, and so uh, when he talks about making the best use of the time because the days are evil, uh, well, the days are evil. You don't need to convince anybody of that. But making the best use of time, um, I think there's there is a fine line to be walked there because it, it sounds at the same time like we need to only ever do precisely the most godly uh, mission-minded thing we can think of. And on the other end of that spectrum, it sounds like kind of taking the opportunities as they arise, which can lead to very uh, kind of laissez-faire approach to it. But, but the word here, making the best use, is actually the word for redeem, like purchase back the time. Now mm -hmm. that we are Christians, and I think that really goes back to thinking about not only not doing the negatives, but embracing the positives that God gives us to do and the good works that God gives us to do. We have been bought back for God's kingdom by Jesus. Now as creatures in his family, in time and space, we can buy back the time. The days are evil, but we as Christians, by the work of the Holy Spirit, can actually use it for good things to bring glory to God's name and to grow his kingdom. Well, this is a good place for us to take a pause. Folks, when we come back, we're going to talk about Paul's statement about not getting drunk with wine. So if you have a glass of wine in your hand, put it down until we talk about it. And also because it's 1130 in the morning. <laughs> See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Roger Mullet, pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming. Friends, remember the three ways to contact me, PastorBoo at gmail.com, on Facebook, or even by phone right here on the air, 800-730-2727. Now, Pastor, before the break, we were just getting into where Paul says, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Now, I, I tease the next one about the getting drunk with wine, but before we do that, the days are evil. That Goodness, it, it seems such a, a strong phrase. Uh, what does he mean, the days are evil? Well, I think it, as in his time, so also in ours, that we live surrounded by a world that, as, as the prophets have said, and as Jesus himself says, the, the world is turned against God, um, partially, of course, as a result of the curse after the fall, uh, and partially as a result of all the sins that we ourselves have committed since then, um, that that we are by nature sinful and unclean, that as the uh, 
as the baptismal rite says, right before Christ, we are in the kingdom of darkness. We are turned away from God until God rescues us. Um, that that the days, right, left unchecked, so to speak, um, the days in which we live are are evil. Uh, we live in a fallen world, and I think likewise here, the days being evil, I think we can um, think a little bit bigger picture across the New Testament and think about, for example, the opening of the letter to the Hebrews, where we talk about the gray and latter days in which we live and recognize that even a lot of the things that are talked about in the book of Revelation have already come to pass. Uh, a lot of those end times kinds of things um, the trials and tribulations and that some of those things are happening now. Um, and, and we, we do well as Christians to recognize, um, whatever soon means from God's perspective, indeed he is coming soon. Um, and I think that that helps us to stay on track ourselves, but also hopefully gives us, uh, perhaps a bit greater impetus for, for sharing this light of Christ with, with those who do not yet know him. So therefore, don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then he adds, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, I grew up in the Southern Baptist tradition, among a couple other traditions, depending on, you know, which church had the best after church meal that week. And uh, we, uh, we, were, we were brought up with this idea, of course, of teetotaling, right? You shouldn't drink any alcohol at all. Uh, this was one of those verses that you would hear often. Do not get drunk with wine. Now, even the most uh, uh, beer-enjoying Lutheran believes that we should not get intoxicated. We should not uh, abuse these gifts of God. But I guess for clarity, it, it, that's what he's saying here, right? He's not saying just avoid alcohol of any kind altogether. Or is there even more nuance that maybe I'm missing? Oh, there's lots of stuff going on in this verse. Um <laughs> Of course, we're, we're not, as those scriptures are not, as Jesus himself is not opposed to alcohol. Even in the Psalms, wine makes glad the hearts of men. Um, it is a good gift of God to be enjoyed within, right, the proper bounds. Um, and so we, we, don't, uh, we don't say that, uh, that drinking alcohol is sinful, but drunkenness is, um, just like anything, right? The abuse of a thing does not necessarily mean that the thing itself is evil. Um, and so here, uh, I think we can look back perhaps uh, on some of those pagan rituals that we've been talking about, which also often involved drunkenness uh, as part of them. And I think particularly here, um, getting drunk with wine specifically might point to an abuse of the Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. uh, it might. That's that's much more clear in Paul's letters to the Corinthians that that's what's going on. But I think that might be hinted at here. And I think the contrast between being drunk with wine and instead being filled with the Spirit might be kind of an artistic way of pointing them back to Pentecost when the crowds thought that the disciples were drunk when in fact they had been filled with the Holy Spirit um, and making that distinction. And grammatically, this verse right here is one of the most important ones in the entire chapter, which seems a little silly <laughs> because it is so specifically about wine um, and debauchery. Um, but this latter half, but be filled with the spirit, most everything after that in this chapter and even carrying into chapter six flows out of that phrase, but be filled with the Holy Spirit such that you address one another. Right. Such that you give thanks always, such that you submit to one another. And if, if uh, having that in the back of our minds, that being filled with the Spirit, such that, or in such a way that, uh, reminds us that when we get to some of these 
maybe passages with a little more tension involved in them, like wives submit to your husband and remember that it is not your own work, but the work of the spirit in you that is, that is enabling you to do this. Um, I think that helps frame these things in the right way. Oh, absolutely. Definitely the, 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 the kind of the lever, the hinge here, but also I want to, I want to uh, illustrate your point too, you know, don't get drunk with wine, be filled with the spirit. You can't help but think about, as you said, back to Pentecost when they were filled with the spirit, but everybody thought they were drunk with wine. And the abuse of the Lord's Supper, I think, is also in Paul's mind here because of specifically the next clause in 19. Because when he says, address one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making melody to the Lord with your heart, you know, that's sort of my silly, obvious question. You know, we're not supposed to walk around and only sing to each other in hymns and only speak to each other in psalms. So so that makes a lot of sense in the context of the worship. So in worship, don't get drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit, and then in worship, do these kinds of things. But our worship doesn't end in our mutual gatherings. So he continues, as you said, not only not only in the, the rest of these verses here, but the whole chapter, because he says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The passages that follow are building upon that principle of mutual submission. Like, like how should believers be subject to one another in household relationships? And that's going to take us through husbands and wives. And then in next uh, Monday's episode, we're going to talk about children's and parents and bond servants and masters, all part of the household of this time period. Now, today's focus is going to be on husbands and wives. And, you know, with 20 minutes left, I think we can probably treat this a little bit, but it could be obviously much ink has been spilled on it. But let's get to it, Phil. So here we go. Uh, Let's do verse 22. Wives. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and he is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Um, I could pause there. Um, I don't know if we should treat them independently, uh, but oh, I'll, I'll, let, I'll let you take I'll let you take that and then we'll add the husbands here in, in very quickly. Yeah, sure. Uh, So again, remembering under the heading, being filled with the Holy Spirit in such a way that you, back to 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, the first example of that is wives submitting to your husbands. And it's very important here, I think, um, and I'm going to, we're going to do a little Greek and then we'll do a little Latin as well, um, because getting to the core of what these words actually mean really helps us unpack what Paul is saying here. I think it is so easy for us to hear submit and and it, it it does not carry to my knowledge any positive connotations anymore particularly nowadays when you say to a woman that she is supposed to submit to her husband that only sounds like a bad thing the word underneath here in greek is hupotasso which is actually two words stuck together hupo which means under and tasso which is an arrangement or an ordering of things, not an order like to give a command, but an order to set things in their proper order. So what Paul is actually doing here is pointing back to the order of creation itself when God created things and put them in their proper order. So the husband being the head of the household, Adam is created first and then Eve. Uh, So the wife is under 
right? After, we might say, in the order of things. Not submissive in terms of inferior, but submissive, and I might say subordinate, which doesn't sound better really in English, but that is that same word in Latin, sub ordo, under the order, according to the order of things that God made them in. And we recognize, right, when you allow this to be the picture of Christ and the church, which Paul comes back to and kind of wraps it all up in verses 32 and 33, that this refers to Christ and the church, then it begins to make a little bit of sense. The church as the feminine, right, as the bride to the bridegroom, Christ, submits herself to Christ. Why? Because Christ has authority over her, but not authority to domineer, not authority to abuse, authority to protect, authority to serve, authority to care for and love and you know, nourish, as the case may be with Christ of the church. So it is the husband, then, who is given authority in the household, but it's not authority to domineer, not authority to abuse, but authority to care for, to serve, to protect. Um, and I think, frankly, contra most of our, our cultural milieu, this is actually exalting the place of the woman in the household, mm -hmm. that she is the one who is cared for and served and protected. Um, and so it is for husbands and wives, right? So I, I do like the word subordinate here. Wives, subordinate yourselves to your husbands, not because it sounds any better in English, frankly, but when you back up and think about what that actually means, joyfully put yourself in the order that God put us in, right? I think, I think the other thing is in English, submit. You can force someone to submit. Um, that, can, that can be taken from someone, but subordination is willing. Right. Um, this, is, this is a call for wives to embrace the role as wives that God has given to them. You know, it, it really, and when we talk about getting things out of order, I think it does, I once again, go back to the garden. When we kind of ponder, what, who was the first person to get it out of order? It was actually Satan, right? Uh, because we know Adam and Eve were together the whole time. Uh, after Eve had some of the fruit, she gave it to her husband who was with her. Oops. Right. And, but what did Satan do? Satan tried to subvert the order from day one. Well, not from day one, I guess. That's an actual day of creation. We shouldn't say day one. My bad. My bad. Yes, but, but right, 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 right. But who did he we, go to? He me. went to Eve. Yeah. And part of part of the sin of Adam, right, was not stepping in and saying, uh-uh, if you want to get to her, you go through me. Right. And that well, is he, part of what that's part of the authority that the husband has to protect and serve his wife. And that's part of, of course, in the greater picture. That's what Christ does for the church. It, and we understand Satan's own fall is based on his desire to not submit to the ordering of creation and uh, in heaven. And, and I think that 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 spills over today because so many issues in the world today are about not following according to God's ordering, but according according to our own wisdom, which changes as the wind blows. I, I do want to add in the husbands because as we think about how difficult it might be to be subordinate to your husband willingly – um, it's less difficult if your husband is keeping up his end of the bargain. So let's look at 25, which is uh, very profound and uh, in some ways uh, a, a burdening call to husbands. But we'll, we'll, we'll unpack it. Here we go. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. 
that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In that same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and to the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Now, I don't want to read too much into it, but I love reading Paul here, and he, he's trying to give these, these helpful you know, uh, behaviors, like here's how we can live for Christ. He tells wives, he tells husbands, and then it seems like he gets lost and carried away right in the middle of it. He just can't wait to say the part about this is about Jesus. <laughs> and so he has to kind of retract a little bit at the end. That's how I've always read it. Just an excited Paul can't, just can't wait to tell the people about how this all connects to Christ. It is. It is exciting. Right. Um, I, and I think at the very end there, I am saying that it refers to Christ in the church. Let each one of you love his wife. Let the wife see she respects her husband. I think that helps us connect back to the end of chapter four. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. And then, of course, chapter five, verse two, which we already heard, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us to remember that the love that husband and wife have for each other is all based on that is so huge here that wives are not called upon to submit to their husbands because their husbands are all perfect and wonderful and great of their own. <laughs> right. But they're called upon to submit to their husbands, right, to to find their place in the order of things as God has created it, precisely because of the love of Christ for the church. Um, I don't know. I've, I've heard little hints in what you've said that have suggested to me that you've probably read um, Dr. Winger's commentary on Ephesians. Um, well, which, which Winger? I got, that, I got that in trouble yesterday. <laughs> I, oh, it is, an, it is an excellent, excellent commentary. Um, and so not there, Timothy, not Timothy about, Winger. Hold on one second. Not Timothy Winger, no. right? This is the other Winger. Yeah, right. All Thomas right. Winger. I, okay, um, I made that mistake the, yesterday. Uh, the the blue CPH commentary series. No, I have uh, not read that yet. I should get Oh, it. it's it's fantastic. And in there, he talks about subordination, among other things, being also an act of worship. Um, which which go I mean, that flows so well out of everything that we've talked about. Now, we don't have a whole lot of time left, so I <laughs> I gotta get some more stuff out. Um when we talk about husbands loving your wives, I always joke during premarital counseling, this is one of the first things that we read through together with a newly engaged couple. Um, and we read through this chapter and we see, husbands, you are told to love your wife, oh, three, four, five, six times, something like that. And wives, how many times are you told to love your husbands? Zero. Um, and that's either shocking or funny or maybe a little bit of both. Um, that, you know, of course, then the running joke is that the wife isn't actually required to love her husband, simply <laughs> to respect him. Um, but I think that helps us see the, the bigger picture, right? When Paul is talking about this profound mystery, that it is actually the love of Christ for the church that is the operating factor here. Um, if I might, and this is very self-serving, um, I'd like to read a couple of sentences from the most recent wedding sermon that I preached. Oh, please. Um, that that kind of speaks to, again, um, 
the way that the way that the interaction of husband and wife actually works. Um, the groom is also a man under authority, and the authority, <clears throat> excuse me, the authority he's given by God to lead this new household is authority to serve, authority to lay down his own life to spare the life of his bride. Authority given by God is never authority to domineer, to dictate, or to tyrannize, but rather authority to serve, to love, and to protect. So likewise, the bride is a woman under authority in the new household, the glorious princess, robes woven with gold, and yet her submission is not slavish or unthinking. Rather, it is willing and joyful, gladly following her head because she trusts that he loves her as Christ loves the church. She can give fully of herself because she knows that her bridegroom does the same for her, reflecting his love for her back to him, giving as she has received, loving as she has been loved. So I think there, and I, and I tried to pull in, right, that, that really all of this is based on this idea of submitting to one another, which is not, not quite submitting to one another that we, that we never uh, have authority over one another according to vocations, but simply the submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ recognizes, I think, much more than never be in charge or never be in authority simply means recognize your vocations and see when you are under authority and when you are in authority and act accordingly. Um, and, and so it is in, in the case of husbands and wives, right? This does not mean that wives never contribute to the decision-making. This doesn't mean wives don't do anything in the household and that the husband simply does what he wants and hopes the wife can keep up. Um, but it is both, right? As there is really, um, with, you know, without the church to save, what, what would Jesus have done? And without Jesus to save us, what would the church have done? We always exist together. Uh, and so husbands and wives, there is no husband without a wife. There is no wife without a husband. Those are titles conferred specifically for this vocation that points us to the greater reality of Christ in the church. And I think it's important, too, that Paul says, submit to your own husbands, um, which is simply to say this relationship of husband and wife is unique, that a woman is not called upon to submit to every man she ever meets. Mm -hmm. She had, she does not have that relationship with every man. She has that relationship with one man in the same way. And I think this is why idolatry and adultery are so closely connected throughout the old Testament. And even earlier here in chapter five, that the church likewise only has one savior, one bridegroom. The church does not submit to anything else in the world the way that we submit to Jesus because we don't have the relationship with anything else in the world that we have with Jesus. Now, you know, the caveats could abound here, um, but I might say, you know, obviously it's never going to be perfect. There is no such thing as a perfect marriage on this side of glory. And within that, this is why we keep in mind the calls to forgive one another and to love one another and to be patient with one another and so on. And I think there's a lot of, <laughs> probably a lot of work for pastors to do in helping the Christian couples in their congregations to do these things, um, particularly in a world that tells us that you can uh, come and go in a marriage as you please. Um, and, and yet to recognize that in eternity, there is one marriage that is perfect. And that's what we're striving for. And that's what we get a glimpse of. That's what we can rejoice in as husbands and wives, that we get to participate in a little glimpse of it, even here, uh, here on this side of heaven.
Well, I know we have very precious time left and you have a lot I'm sure you still want to cover, but I would be remiss if I didn't bring up the concept that even in the context of marriages which began Christian, there is a there are sometimes a point where one of the spouses, husband or wife, um, unfortunately, most times the wife ends up in an abusive relationship. And her faithfulness to God, her desire to keep God's will, perhaps even what she's been told by her husband or vice versa, prevents her from maybe getting out of a situation. So how do we as a church encourage and help people in those situations not to you know, be stuck between you know, they thinking that they need to continue to submit to abuse even, um, even with this type of a word from God? How would we do that? How would we address that? Very carefully. Uh-uh. Um, and and with grace, I think to recognize um, that, of course, uh, there are broken marriages, just as there are broken families and broken relationships of of every stripe, and and to recognize too that even even in the midst of broken homes, broken families, broken relationships, we are by faith in Jesus, by our baptism into Him, we are still members of a perfect one of those things, that if we have a father who is not a perfect father, uh, and of course there is no such thing on this side of heaven, yet by faith in Christ, we have a perfect father. We do not have perfect husbands and wives, and yet as members of the church, we all have a perfect bridegroom in Jesus. There is no such thing as a perfect family, and yet by baptism and adoption into God's family, we do have a perfect heavenly, eternal family. Uh, so I think that's that's part of that um, for hope, for encouragement in the meantime, and to recognize, um, you know, depending on the specific situation, there are lots of uh, thing, you know, guilt and shame and so on that get attached to things like that and to divorce. And, and I would never come out and encourage divorce. I don't think that's ever a good thing, regardless of the situation. Um, that's never, that's never good that somebody's going to get hurt when that happens, no matter what the circumstance might be, but to recognize too, I think as a church that there are actually situations where that is allowed by the scriptures, not because it's necessarily a good thing, but because it might be the best we can come up with on this side of heaven and for the congregation then to recognize the brokenness that does exist in the world. And it's easy for us to be kind of insulated from some of those things on Sunday mornings, because even in the confession of sins, I've heard that corporate confession called the one honest moment of the week, uh, when we all <laughs> finally just say those words and we're finally honest about it. But even to our best friends in the congregation, we usually put on a Sunday morning face. Um, and I think, frankly, not being afraid to talk about things like this, uh, not yeah. being afraid to have difficult conversations about, you know, this is actually the way that husbands and wives are supposed to live together. And if one or the other, and I think you're right, it's usually the husband who refuses to do his job. Um, if that's happening, then we need to be encouraging them to to live in the order, right? Subordo, to submit to one another, uh, to be in the arrangement that God has that ha- that God has ordained uh, even before the fall into sin. And and to uh, and to build them up as best we can. And if there are if there are circumstances beyond our control, then uh, to to as best we can still love and receive those people, uh, help them to repentance and forgiveness and 
encourage them with the reminder that as members of Christ, we have a perfect bridegroom waiting for us who will come back and get us very soon. Well, that's where we're going to have to leave it. Now, if you are in a relationship where you are being abused, please reach out for help as soon as can. Don't wait. But if you are in a relationship where you're struggling, keeping these tenets that St. Paul gives us, reach out to your Lutheran pastor. He can help you. Um, You know, on the radio, we're not going to be able to go through every nuance, but it is an important thing to talk about, as our guest said. And I'm grateful to our guest to come and talk about it with us. It's been the Reverend Roger Mullet. He's the pastor of Prince of Peace Lutheran Church in Buffalo, Wyoming. Pastor, thanks so much for being on the show again. Thanks for having me. I very much enjoy it. Folks, in Monday's episode, we're going to wrap up Ephesians with chapter six, and it'll be my guest, the Reverend Robert Moeller Jr. In this final chapter, Paul sums up his, his instructions to the Ephesians on things like spiritual warfare and household conduct. Uh, He moves from husbands and wives to children, honoring their parents and fathers, guiding their children in the Lord. Controversially, he talks about Christian slaves to obey their earthly masters as they obey Christ. What's that about? We're going to talk about that and a lot more. So until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.